The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Allergy season is just around the corner, and Brio, the innovative air purifier, can help. Brio quickly removes common allergens, including pollen and pet dander, and deep cleans without filter clogging, so it's more effective than HEPA. Brio's long-life filters save you money, too. Breathe easy this spring with Brio, the advanced air purifier that's ideal for every room in your home. And get 15% off Brio using code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com. That's code IHEART at B-R-I-O AirPurifier.com. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head. I'm walking with the dead. After a night of partying, Indiana University sophomore Lauren Spear left a friend's off-campus apartment and seemingly vanished into thin air. This upcoming June, June 2022, will mark the 11th anniversary of the 20-year-old's disappearance. And law enforcement is still no closer to solving the case. Don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean there aren't theories of what may have happened to Lauren or even a list of questionable individuals. And it's certainly not for lack of effort on law enforcement's part. There's a lot to unpack with Lauren's disappearance. And at the center of it all is the question nobody can seem to answer. What happened to Lauren Elizabeth Spear? Born on January 17th, 1991 to Charlene and Rob Spear, Lauren spent her childhood living in an affluent suburb of Westchester County, New York, which is about 30 minutes north of NYC. Lauren listened to classic rock and enjoyed sports like soccer and lacrosse. The four Spears, Charlene, Rob, Lauren, and Lauren's older sister, Rebecca, practiced Judaism. And from my research, it's clear that Lauren's faith played a large role in her upbringing and social activities. Loved ones describe Lauren as bubbly, caring, loving, and just fun to be around. And 2020's documentary, Looking for Lauren, showcases that side of her. There are clips of Lauren dressed up in a costume gown, proclaiming that she'd grow up to be a princess. Then there's footage of Lauren in a ballet class as a child. Perhaps the sweetest home movies included in the aforementioned documentary are moments from Lauren's bat mitzvah. She's wearing a royal blue dress with a quilted bodice, and her blonde hair is in a half-up, half-down hairdo. That would have been 2004, and you know she was just feeling herself, feeling beautiful, feeling like all eyes were on her, just like when she was that princess when she was little. I so agree, because 
In that clip, she even confidently speaks into the microphone, thanking her parents for the wonderful evening celebrating her coming of age. The documentary then cuts to another moment from that same evening. Lauren's father, Rob, now has the microphone in hand as he gives a moving speech about his youngest daughter, Lauren, who sits beside him. He's beaming as he says, quote, we're proudest of how she handles herself, her boundless potential, and her joy in living life, unquote. The clips from Lauren's bat mitzvah end with footage of Lauren and her father sweetly dancing together on the dance floor before Rob hugs and kisses her cheek. The tender moment turns almost bittersweet knowing what we know now in 2022, that Lauren would disappear not too many years after the father-daughter duo shared this dance. Around the same time as Lauren's bat mitzvah, Lauren attends a sleepaway camp in Pennsylvania called Camp Tawanda. She befriends a group of guys and girls, including Jason, aka Jay Rosenbaum, and Jesse Wolf, who'd later become a part of her core group of friends while attending Indiana University, or IU as it's often referred to. IU is about an hour south of Indianapolis in Bloomington, Indiana. It's known for Big Ten basketball, football, and much the chagrin of school officials. It also earned the ranking of number one party school in the country during the early 2000s. Lauren and Jesse Wolf from Lauren's Captawanda days began dating during Lauren's senior year of high school. And it's this relationship that first brought her to IU's campus where Jesse was a freshman. The following year, Lauren enrolled as a fashion merchandising major while the couple continued their relationship through Lauren's freshman and sophomore years of college. They were exclusive and hoped to marry one day. Some resources refer to Lauren as, quote, the love of Jesse's life, unquote. Overall, Lauren's college life was good. Some would even say great. She had the support of her family, a steady boyfriend who loved her, a close-knit group of friends, and was incredibly active in IU's Hillel organization, which is a Jewish community on campus. In fact, Lauren, her sister Rebecca, and other members of the Hillel organization went to Israel over spring break 2011 to plant trees. And despite the hundreds of miles between the U.S. and Israel, Lauren called her mom every single day without fail which just goes to show you how close-knit this family was. Lauren's college plans didn't end there, though. She planned to leave Indiana and head back to New York for the second half of summer 2011 for a dream internship at Anthropology. But she'd never get the chance. It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2011. Lauren and most of her friends at Indiana University are done with classes for the semester. They're ready to let their hair down and have a good time, celebrate school being over until fall semester, or at least until summer session begins, which is what Lauren would be doing before her anthropology internship started. Lauren invites some friends to watch the NBA finals and drink wine at her off-campus apartment in the Smallwood apartment complex on 9th in college. Jesse Lauren's boyfriend of three years at this point isn't among the friends at her apartment, though. He too is watching the game, but he's at an off-campus fraternity house with a bunch of his fraternity brothers drinking and smoking weed, allegedly. Even though Lauren and Jesse aren't watching the game together, they text back and forth a few times throughout the night and even make plans to see each other the next morning. When the game ends, Lauren texts Jesse telling him that she'd be going to bed soon. 
to which he responds, quote, if you wake up, call me and we'll talk, unquote. That's not where Lauren's night ends. In fact, it was only the beginning. As we go through the timeline leading up to Lauren's disappearance, please keep in mind that much of Lauren's night takes place within a six to seven block radius of her apartment at the Smallwood Apartment Complex on 9th and College in Bloomington. Just to give you an idea of when I'm describing these things, these places, locations, none of them are too far from each other. Still a little bit of a walk, maybe one or two blocks, but that's about it. Remember how Lauren had intended to go to sleep after the basketball game? Well, that didn't happen because just after midnight, Lauren's childhood friend from Cap Tawanda and fellow Indiana University student, Jay Rosenbaum, invites her via text to his townhouse to pregame. You know, have some drinks with friends before heading to the collection of nearby bars. They're young and living in a college town known for its party reputation. Attending a party this late in the night isn't uncommon for Lauren or her group of friends, or most college students for that matter. You know what? I was thinking the exact same thing. None of this seems out of the ordinary for a 20-year-old in college. Not in the least. Lauren's hesitant at first, but eventually agrees when Jay sends a follow-up text invitation. He lives two blocks away, so she figures, why not? The Smallwood apartment surveillance camera captures Lauren leaving the complex at 12.30 a.m., which technically makes it June 3rd. She looks happy and put together wearing black leggings, a white tank top with a white shirt over it. And despite having had wine with friends while watching the basketball game, she doesn't appear drunk, at least in the photo released by the Bloomington PD. David Roan, a friend who lives a few doors down from Lauren and her three roommates in the same apartment complex, joins her. There isn't much information about David available except for what allegedly happened at Jay's kickback and the fact that Lauren, David, and Jay were all friends who had spent the previous weekend camping out and partying at the Indy 500 the weekend prior. Lauren and David arrive at Jay's townhouse where about a dozen other Indiana University students are already heavily intoxicated and all of the hard liquor is gone with the exception of some leftover beer. According to multiple sources, Jay consumed somewhere between six to 10 shots of Belvedere vodka before Lauren and David arrived, which makes the validity of the following information questionable. Jay later tells investigators that either Lauren or David told him they'd snorted a mixture of cocaine and crushed up clonopin, which is a prescription drug used for seizures and panic attacks. And he said this happened before they'd arrived. I say it's questionable because he was quite intoxicated and has difficulty remembering who told him that information. In fact, is he even sure it was Lauren or David? Could have been someone else? I don't know, but it makes you wonder. Allergy season is just around the corner and Brio, the innovative air purifier, can help. Brio quickly removes common allergens, including pollen and pet dander, and deep cleans without filter clogging, so it's more effective than HEPA. Brio's long life filters save you money too. Breathe easy this spring with Brio, the advanced air purifier that's ideal for every room in your home. And get 15% off Brio using code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com. That's code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. 
Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. At the party, Lauren meets Jay's neighbors, Corey Rossman and Michael Beth, for the second time ever. Lauren actually met Corey and Michael at the Indy 500 the week before, and it's reported that Corey told friends he wanted to sleep with Lauren. Lauren and Corey hit it off while at Jay's townhouse before they leave Jay, David, and the rest of the party to walk to Kilroy's, a sports bar on Walnut Street, where surveillance cameras capture them entering at 1.46 a.m. Kilroy's is super popular amongst the Indiana University crowd. Despite looking like a dive bar from the outside, it has a club-like atmosphere inside, in addition to a sandy outdoor beach-like area where students often walk about barefoot. Now, Lauren's only 20 years old, so she's technically not of age to drink. But she has a fake ID, much like the rest of the IU student body under 21, which is how she entered the establishment and how she was able to buy alcoholic beverages. However, witnesses come forward after the fact and say that Lauren literally stumbles into the bar and appears to need Corey's help to stay upright before she's even had anything to drink at Kilroy's. She's not the only one drinking, though. According to Crime Weekly's three-part coverage of Lauren's disappearance, Corey wanted at least, quote, three more drinks, unquote, before he called it a night. 41 minutes later at 2.27 a.m., surveillance cameras capture Corey and an incredibly intoxicated and barefoot Lauren leaving the bar. Lauren not only left her phone at Kilroy's, but her shoes as well. A number of resources speculate that Lauren took off her shoes in the sand-covered patio area and forgot about them. Around 2.40 a.m., Lauren and Corey arrive at Lauren's apartment complex, stumbling into the building and up to the fifth floor, Lauren's floor. When they're confronted by three of Jesse's guy friends who happen to be in the hallway as Lauren and Corey exit the elevator. Right away, it's clear to the group of guys that Lauren's extremely intoxicated or in some way mentally altered. Now, these three guys know Lauren because they're friends with her boyfriend, Jesse, but they have no idea who Corey is and they're taken aback by this situation. Here's their friend's girlfriend who's exceptionally drunk with some random guy who could possibly take advantage of her. Some sources go so far as to say that Corey was being super handsy with Lauren. Now, did that actually happen? I'm not sure. Some of the sources suggest this, but law enforcement hasn't confirmed it ever. And they have the unreleased surveillance footage of this entire encounter. Of course, the lack of information being released is most likely for good reason, but I can only imagine how frustrating this is for Lauren's family and her friends. There's so much speculation still going on with this case. So one of the guys in the group named Zach Oaks asks Lauren, are you okay? Before she can respond, Corey tells the guys, quote, she's okay, I got it, unquote. To which Zach says, hey dude, you better take her back to her room. Corey doesn't like that Zach's injecting himself into the situation and starts cussing out Zach and the other guys. And that's when Zach punches Corey in the face, knocking him to the tile floor. 
Here's a quote from Lauren's father, Rob, describing the altercation based on information gathered from police and the private detective the Spira family hired. Rob said, quote, we have heard that Zach Oaks and the two other boys observed Lauren and Corey and that Lauren was in bad shape and they didn't like what they observed at that point and they wanted Corey to take Lauren back to her apartment. I believe the reason why Corey got hit was because of what they were observing as far as Lauren's condition and Corey's behavior was concerned, unquote. As for Zach's intervention, that's as far as it went. Zach and the other guys fled the scene the moment Corey hit the floor. And even though Lauren's about 30 feet from her apartment at this point, she doesn't go home. Instead, surveillance footage captures Lauren and Corey exit the building and into an alleyway leading up to 11th Street. On the next block, Lauren sits down on a staircase to kind of get her bearings straight and falls backward, slamming her head onto the concrete step. The thud is so loud that a woman nearby hears it and asks whether or not Lauren's all right. But again, Corey doesn't allow Lauren to respond for herself and says, she's okay, I'll take care of it. Lauren gets up and her and Corey continue down the alleyway. She falls hard once again without raising her hands to cushion the blow as her face hits the ground. And a few steps later, she falls a third time. I just want to take a minute to do a side note. Lauren's severe impairment raised some serious questions. Primarily, was her state that night a result of her having taken drugs? Or had someone drugged her? The Spear family denies that Lauren used drugs. However, her friends and Jesse's family disagree. Her boyfriend's mother, Nadine Wolf, is reported to have told a news outlet that Lauren was, quote, asked to leave Cap Tawanda due to her alleged serious drug issues. Nadine further explains, quote, Lauren would abuse to the point where she would black out. Jesse always threatened to call and tell her parents, and Lauren would respond, if you do, I'll break up with you, end quote. Additionally, Lauren had been arrested for public intoxication, and investigators would later find a small bag of cocaine in her apartment. At one point on 10th and College, Lauren and Corey stop at a building where Corey knocked on a door of an apartment occupied by four girls he knew. But it's so late, the girls were asleep and didn't answer. Corey then carries a clearly inebriated Lauren over his shoulder, which a lot of resources describe as a fireman's carry, as he crosses through a vacant lot that leads to his townhouse on 11th Street. According to some sources, there were sharp objects and broken bricks on the ground. But other sources say that Lauren simply couldn't walk on her own. Whatever the case was, it's clear that Lauren was carried by Corey. And that's where surveillance footage of Lauren and Corey ends because there weren't cameras anywhere on 11th Street near the townhouses. They get to Corey's apartment on West 11th Street where his roommate, Michael Beth, remember him from Jay's party earlier in the evening? Well, he's there because they live together and he's working on a research paper. The details of the following events are from Michael's perspective, so keep that in mind. That's not to say he did or didn't lie about anything, but simply to point out that memories aren't perfect. Most of us in true crime understand, well, eyewitnesses are super important. They are not always the most reliable source of information. According to Michael, Corey vomited on the stairs upon entering the townhouse. Was it from drinking or a possible concussion? 
It's not clear from any of the resources, but Corey, through his lawyer, made it known that he was punched so hard that he lost memory of the night starting about 15 minutes before the altercation. A claim that Rob Spear, Lauren's dad, calls, quote, a story of convenience, unquote. Back to Michael's version of events, Michael helps Corey up the stairs to his room and puts him to bed. He returns downstairs and offers Lauren a pillow and the couch for the night. Lauren declines the offer and insists that she wants to continue partying. Michael doesn't have time to babysit. It's now 3.30 a.m. and he's trying to finish his paper. Plus, he doesn't really know Lauren. Remember, this is the second time they've ever met. So he walks Lauren two doors down to his neighbor, Jay Rosenbaum's. Yes, the same Jay that went to camp with Lauren as a teenager and invited her to pregame after the basketball game. The moment Lauren enters Jay's apartment, he can tell something is off. He's known her for years. He knows what Lauren's like when she's drinking and when she's not. For starters, there's a noticeable bruise under Lauren's eye. He questions her about the injury, and she responds, quote, I don't know. Lauren then picks up an iPod on the kitchen counter, thinking it's a cell phone, and tries making a phone call. Like we learned a little bit ago, she lost her phone earlier in the evening. So she figures, I'm going to make a call with what's sitting here. Jay allows Lauren to use his phone, and she places two. One to David, her neighbor who walked with her to Jay's party at the start of the evening, and another to a male friend who also was with her earlier that night watching basketball at her apartment. Both were sleeping, neither picked up, and no messages were left. It's getting later and later. Jay, who has two friends visiting from out of town, insists that Lauren go to sleep on his couch. But again, she refuses, saying she wants to go home. There's not much else Jay can do but let Lauren leave. So at approximately 4.30 in the morning, Lauren, still barefoot and phoneless, exits Jay's townhouse and heads south on College Avenue from 11th Street, presumably on her way back to her own apartment. According to Jay, he calls out to Lauren, quote, text me when you find your phone, unquote, before she turns the corner, never to be seen again. Hours pass and Jesse tries in vain to get in touch with Lauren. If you recall, they had plans to get together in the morning, but all of Jesse's calls and texts to Lauren go unanswered. He grows increasingly worried and eventually gets in touch with one of Lauren's three roommates, Hadar Tamir. Hadar hasn't seen Lauren either. She leaves class and gives Jesse her key to the apartment she shared with Lauren so that Jesse can see if maybe Lauren made it back. Jesse races to Lauren's off-campus apartment, goes straight to her bedroom, and is even more concerned to discover Lauren's not home. Where could she be? And why isn't she answering her phone? He tries calling her one more time and the call goes through. Except the person on the other end isn't Lauren. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away. Like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Instead, it's an employee at Kilroy Sports Bar not far from Lauren's apartment. The employee answered to let Jesse know that it'd been found at the bar. 
Jesse's worry is at an all-time high now. He knows something isn't right and contacts Lauren's sister, Rebecca, immediately and relays the news about Lauren's disappearance. According to HLN's real-life nightmare documentary, Rebecca questions whether the situation is serious enough to get her parents involved because she doesn't want to needlessly worry them. Jesse insists that Rebecca let her parents know as soon as possible. Through tears, Charlene Spear recalls the moment she received that fateful call from her oldest daughter in 2020's Looking for Lauren Spear documentary. Charlene and Rob were eating dinner at their New York home when the phone rang. Not thinking anything of it, Charlene answered the phone, and in that instant, her whole world was turned upside down. She's almost unable to get the words out, but describes the moment as, quote, heart-stopping. Meanwhile, Jesse drives to Bloomington Police Station and reports Lauren missing less than 12 hours after she was last seen. Charlene and Rob leave New York, boarding a plane almost immediately. They arrive in Bloomington the following day, Saturday, June 4th. And they live there for seven months, helping coordinate search efforts and hiring their own private investigator. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. In the days following Lauren's disappearance, the Spears family, law enforcement, Lauren's friends, and the Bloomington community jump into action, searching for Lauren on social media and in person. A Good Samaritan starts a Twitter account at News on Lauren S and encourages celebrities to share her posts on Lauren's disappearance for more exposure. Remember, this is 2011, so the use of Twitter is still somewhat new. And it works. Ryan Seacrest, Scott Baio, and Kim Kardashian are among the high-profile people that tweet about Lauren's disappearance. Hundreds of volunteers, most of whom had never even met Lauren, canvas the surrounding areas up to three times a day, from dawn to midnight. Wooded areas, abandoned quarries, different bodies of water, alleyways, and dumpsters, where people would even rip open trash bags hoping to find any sign of Lauren. Others post flyers on storefronts, telephone poles, bus benches. Everywhere you look in Bloomington, there's a picture of Lauren Spears smiling back at you, along with her physical description next to the photo. Five feet tall, 90 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes, and the following message in bold. Anything small could be big. Speak There's also a note about a medical urgency on the flyers because Lauren has a rare heart condition called long QT syndrome, which requires medication and can lead to fainting, seizures, or potentially sudden death. Aside from Lauren, Jesse, and the Spear family, no one else was aware of the condition. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children dispatches a rapid response team to Bloomington to aid in the search for Lauren assigning a missing person's number to her case, 11-73375. Then the national media gets involved, bringing awareness to Lauren's disappearance via NBC's Today, ABC's Good Morning America, and the CBS Morning News. That same day, the Bloomington Police Department hold their first of many press conferences, and they confirm they have recovered surveillance footage of Lauren from the night in question, allowing law enforcement to piece together her activities and verify the counts of eyewitnesses, which is how we got the timeline I went through earlier. Shortly after the investigators pieced together the timeline of Lauren's night prior to her disappearance, they get a tip from an anonymous source suggesting Lauren's remains may have been deposited 
in or near Lake Monroe, just outside of Bloomington. Police use boats and divers to search the expansive lake, but come up empty-handed. The Spear family offers $100,000 for information leading to their daughter's safe return. Colt's owner, Jim Ursay, goes on Twitter and offers an additional $10,000 for information surrounding Lauren's disappearance. And Indiana University sets up a $50,000 search fund. Two weeks following Lauren's disappearance, Bloomington police release enhanced images from an apartment's security cameras. These images show a white van in the same area Lauren was last seen within 10 minutes of her disappearance. Police find the white van and scour it for evidence. The lead is short-lived, though. Police say the white van has no ties to the case. The owner was simply in the area to pick up an employee for an early morning shift. Despite what feels like a step backwards, police say information is pouring in. However, they refuse to release much information for, quote, fear of compromising the case. The media calls out Bloomington PD for their lack of transparency, but Bloomington PD doesn't give in. Instead, what they do say is that they have 10 persons of interest, including Corey, Michael, Jesse, and Jay, who, if you recall, was the last person to see Lauren. Corey, Michael, and Jay make sense as a person of interest, at least for me, given what took place that night. But if you are like me, you're probably wondering why Jesse, Lauren's boyfriend, is on the list at all. Here's why. Even though Jesse and his roommates claim he was at his apartment and asleep by 2.30 a.m. on June 3rd, police can neither prove nor disprove his alibi. Had Jesse's friends that encountered Lauren and Corey at her building contacted Jesse about her being with another guy that night? We don't know, but that could very well be cause for motive. The Spears family wonders that too. From the start of their search for Lauren, her parents Charlene and Rob believed that the group of friends that Lauren was hanging out with that night knows more than they're telling the police. And they question Corey, Michael, Jesse, and Jay's innocence, especially since they lawyered up quickly. Given the status of Lauren's case, it's right for them to question anything and anyone. It's also important to remember here that everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's literally written into our Bill of Rights that they have a right to a lawyer. And this is a big deal. And hopefully everything will work towards getting justice for Lauren. To this day, all four young men maintain they're innocent and have been cooperative with the investigation. Corey and Mike both submitted DNA tests early on. And while Jay and Jesse's parents didn't allow them to take police polygraphs, they did take third-party polygraphs. In fact, Jesse took one administered by a retired FBI polygrapher with, quote, irrefutable credentials just two weeks after Lauren's disappearance. That polygraph confirmed Jesse's innocence. To date, authorities have made no arrest in Lauren's disappearance. In the months and years following Lauren's disappearance, undercover police and campus security became an even bigger fixture at IU. Students found using fake IDs were put into holding cells overnight. Sorority and fraternity houses also put safety protocols in place, including the buddy system. No one was allowed to go anywhere on their own. A new Indiana Lifeline law went into effect in 2012, granting immunity from certain charges such as public intoxication and minor consumption to those who call 911 when a friend is taken 
a dangerous amount of alcohol. This is significant because the Spears and others close to Lauren's disappearance questioned how her friends may have reacted if Lauren was in medical distress that night and they were afraid to call because she had consumed illegal drugs or was underage of the drinking age. That's right. Lauren had long QT syndrome, which if we remember, can cause fainting, seizures, and even sudden death. The impact of Lauren's disappearance and her memory on the IU and surrounding Bloomington community hasn't been forgotten. In fact, at IU's 2013 commencement ceremony, University President Michael A. McRobbie acknowledged Lauren's absence as, quote, a member of the Indiana University community who should be with us today, but who is not, unquote. He called her disappearance a, quote, terrible and unimaginable strain on her family and friends. Lauren's parents, Robert and Charlene Spear, filed a civil lawsuit against Corey Rossman, Jay Rosenbaum, and Mike Beth in 2013. The lawsuit claims that the three young men supplied Lauren with alcohol and other substances, but failed to make sure she returned safely to her apartment, which in turn led to her presumed death. The Spears attorney subpoenaed Verizon and AT&T for Corey J. and Mike's cell phone records spanning 134 days before and after Lauren's June 3, 2011 disappearance. On top of that, the Spears subpoenaed Indiana University seeking the three men's academic and disciplinary records. Jay's attorney called the lawsuit, quote, nothing more than a fishing expedition, unquote. And it seems that Mike and Corey's counsel agreed as each attempted to put an end to the subpoenas. A federal judge dismissed the case and the Spears appealed in 2015, stating the men owed Lauren a, quote, duty of care, but continued to give her alcohol despite her already being intoxicated that night. In the ruling, a federal judge pointed to the lack of evidence in showing that the men were responsible for her disappearance. With everything we've covered thus far, we still have so many questions. We know almost everything about the night in question. There's surveillance camera footage, eyewitness accounts, phone records. So how is it we know nothing about what happened to Lauren after she left Jay's apartment? Her trail literally vanishes. According to Mike Ciravallo, the private detective the Spear family hired, there are three possible scenarios for what happened to Lauren in the early hours of June 3rd, 2011. Number one, Lauren could have died independently and without the interference of anyone else. But that also leaves the question of who disposed of Lauren's body, if that is the case. Number two, she was killed by someone she knew. Or number three, she was abducted by a stranger. Despite the countless days, weeks, and years that have passed since Lauren's disappearance, Bloomington PD refuses to call it a cold case. The day before the 10-year anniversary of Lauren's disappearance, the Bloomington Police Department released a pre-taped video on YouTube. Chief Michael Dykoff stares directly into the camera and explains why Lauren's case is far from cold. He says, quote, many times we are asked if Lauren's case is a cold case, and our answer to that is an unequivocal no. He continues saying, quote, a cold case is a case where no information or leads have come in, and the case file sits dormant. That has never been the case regarding Lauren, and there has always been something to follow up on, end quote. Bloomington PD continues to investigate all potential leads working in tandem with the FBI to find Lauren. At the time of the chief's statement, the Bloomington Police Department had received upwards of 3,600 
tips and executed at least 10 search warrants. The Spears aren't giving up on Lauren either. The family runs a website and a Facebook page dedicated to sharing news and other updates regarding Lauren's case. There's one post in particular that perfectly captures the heartache of the past decade while simultaneously showcasing the unflinching nature of a mother's love. Without further ado, here's what Lauren's mom, Charlene, had to say on the anniversary of her daughter's disappearance. Quote, Lauren has been missing since early Friday morning, June 3rd, and was last seen on 11th Street and College Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana. Words from the posters created after Lauren's disappearance. Those words still so jarring, still inconceivable. Nine years ago, Lauren vanished into thin air. It's as if it just happened. For nine years, we've followed every lead that has come our way, all either dead ends or lies. Not one single step closer to the truth. Most who visit this page already know Lauren's story. Do I think her disappearance is random? No, I do not. Do I think we will ever get the truth or find Lauren's remains? I don't know. Will we ever stop searching? No, we will not. Will Lauren ever be less a part of our family? No, she will not. We are all so fragile, this inner circle who knew and loved Lauren. No cure for the emptiness Lauren's disappearance has left in our hearts. So for those responsible, how lucky you have been. Nine years of dead ends for our family. It will not always be that way. I hope that someday someone will have a crisis of conscience and speak the truth. If not, well, you got away with it. Or did you? Anyone with any first-hand knowledge of what happened to Lauren on June 3rd, 2011, I beseech you, please contact us through one of the following ways. Bloomington Police Department at 812-339-4471. Bo Didel and Associates at 800-777-9366. Or find Lauren at PO Box 1226, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. She ends the note saying, hoping today is the day. We love you, Lauren. Mom, Dad, and Rebecca. Again, that post is from the ninth anniversary of Lauren's disappearance, but this June marks 11 years. She may be missing, but she will not be forgotten. That's where we'll leave the episode for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram, and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.